And what I'd like to ask you to do is just go to our website and re-watch the first sermon because there's a lot of stuff in there that I'm gonna, not going to take time to explain today, but all plays heavily into how this uh, series, this narrative, this story is developing. So if you can just go to our website and re-watch that, you'll get back up to speed and then uh, keep watching and keep following and keep reading as we go uh, throughout this series. When I was in college, I was, uh, of course, doing what most college students do, which is, no, <laughs> it's not study. It's pursuing members of the opposite sex or whatever. And um, my wife was in the picture at this time. We weren't married, of course, but we were uh, introducing ourselves in, in a deeper way. And so I was doing what all guys do, which is trying to, of course, get her to sit closer and closer to me. And one of the ways that guys do this, I'm sorry, guys, for giving away our um, great secrets here, but is to take the um, potential mate to a scary movie, right? Definitely. I mean, scary movie one week, romantic movie the next, and just keep moving down the line until eventually she's hooked. It'll work, right? That's, that's all it takes. Women are that simple, right? I mean, scary movie? No. Maybe. Now I've been married for a little bit longer, and I understand it's a bit more complex than that, but operating under the very, very simplistic male um, paradigm, I'm thinking, okay, good. Scary movie? closer on the couch, don't worry, I'll protect you <laughs> from the scary video screen, you know. So I take her to this movie in 1996, actually don't take her, it's out by then, um, it's called Ghost and the Darkness, Ghost and the Darkness. Now typically we think of Ghost in the Darkness, right, but this is actually a movie about two lions, um, and what they're doing is they've become man-eaters or they've acquired the taste for human flesh and so they've stopped hunting normal game and they've just focused in on people and there's this railway being built in East Africa and so they're following the camps of workers along and just taking their pick throughout the night of this easy prey, pulling them out of the tent and um, consuming them and leaving what's left for the scared people to wake up and find it the next day. Great movie, right? <laughs> Don't, if I use a movie illustration up here, by the way, it doesn't mean I recommend this movie. <laughs> okay, let me just say, well, Pastor Jeremy watched it. No, I, I don't know. It just fit the sermon, so I'm using it, okay? So here's what happens is throughout this movie, there's these big scary lions, and you can actually go to the Museum of Natural History in Chicago now and look at these two very lions. But anyways, they've they chased this uh, group of people, and it's a very frightening and vulnerable spot to be in, to be asleep, alone, if you will, at night, in the dark, in the middle of the African safari, and not knowing whether or not all of a sudden somebody's going to pull you out by your toes, and you're going to find out that that's a lion. That's scary. And so these, uh, eventually what happens is, I'm not going to give away all the film, but these people are very frightened and all the workers and people are abandoning the, the railway commission. And um, I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's two variables here, if you will. There's the darkness, which is scary. And then there's the lions, which are also scary. 
But in reality, it is the lions that are most scary. Of course, the dark is scary. That sort of heightens it. You don't know what's coming. You don't know if that twig or whatever that snapped and broke was a lion or just some random noise. But the real fear is the lion itself. Today, Jonah and his mates are going to find themselves in a situation in the darkness. And the question for them is, what is most scary? You know, the dark is scary, right? But perhaps, just maybe, there's something else out there that's even more frightening than the darkness itself. The storm is crazy. I mean, it's scary. It's blowing. It's about to sink the boat, and they don't know what's going to happen. They think they're going to die. The storm is very scary. But maybe, just maybe, there's something out there that's more scary than even the storm itself. So today, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to go through um, the rest of this chapter today through verse 17. And what I'll do is I'll just refresh your memory with a couple key words. And also I'll read the first six verses, which we covered last week. But I want to go ahead and just read it in case you weren't here uh, so that you can pick up rather than me trying to summarize it in a bunch of different ways. I'll just read the first six verses and then we'll jump into the next section. We'll read through it which is going to be our uh, main text for today. So we're going to look at Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to read the first few verses, and then we'll see what God has to say from the following verses. But let me ask you this before I start. Are your ears tingling? Are they tingling? Okay, good. I hope so. If you don't know what I'm talking about, rewatch last week's sermon. This is Jonah chapter 1, and uh, just a couple of key words. Remember... Arise and call out. That was a key word. Uh, We also talked about the presence of the Lord. That was a key phrase. And there was one that I left out from verses 4 through 5 last week that I want to show you that's going to pop up again today. And that is this word. It is hurled. It is hurled. Actually, Pastor Chuck and I had a lot of fun with this in a staff meeting a couple weeks ago. I was explaining to him how this word word hurled shows up all throughout the book of Jonah. First with the uh, sailors, or no, first, sorry, this is key. First with God, God hurls the storm. And then also, I feel like, feeling a lot of ring, got it? All right. And then also, God hurls the storm, then the sailors do what? Hurl the cargo. And then eventually Jonah is hurled as well. So I'm just looking at Pastor Chuck, the, which, who is our middle school pastor. And I'm saying, I know there's got to be some middle school activity application here somewhere. You can have a lot of fun with hurling at jam night, right? You know what I'm saying? Okay. All right. So let's look at, and I looked later, the word that the whale uses to spit up Jonah is not hurl. But it would have been so cool if it was, huh? All right, Jonah chapter 1, it says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it. To go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship itself actually threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his own little G, God. And they hurled the cargo that was into the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, on the other hand, he had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, that is that God, whoever he is, will give us a thought that we may not perish. And then after that, verse 7, the sailors said to one another, Come, let's cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? (sighs) And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more or exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, even though the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today I think the sailors find themselves in a position that we ourselves often find ourselves in. And that is what to do with a guilty party. We know that there is a problem. Clearly something is going wrong. And we know that someone is to blame. They are at fault. In fact, this text is so explicit, Jonah says, it's because of me. I caused this. I did it. Clearly there is a problem going on in this scenario. There is a storm Some god, a god, we don't know which one yet, but a god has hurled this storm upon us. Consequently, we're afraid, we're in trouble, we're about to lose our lives. What in the world do we do? Someone is guilty, we don't know who, and then we don't really know what to do with them. This is very similar to us in in parenting as we look at our kids and they're going... And we're hearing two sides of the story, and we're going, what do we do? I don't know. Surely he's not bleeding because um, his nose just randomly started. You know, the other day I came home from, this is is a nice story, I hope. I came home from uh, church, which is where I work, 
And so I came home from work, and one of the sons walked out the front door, and he had a bloody nose. I said, oh, hi. He's kind of hanging his head, and I said, he said, I need to apologize to Ezra. He's <laughs> like, yeah, it looks like you do. <laughs> Go get it, <laughs> you know. Well, whatever. Someone's guilty and they've done something, whether it's disobedient children, disrespectful students, wayward employees, or even church members, parents, teachers, employers, civic leaders. All of us come into this situation where we're wondering, what do we do with a guilty party? Someone has done something and it's messed it up for everybody else. They didn't just affect themselves, they affected everyone else. When we look at this text later, this is a Jonah pun, you ready? There's always, sin always has a spillover effect. All right, good, write that one down. Sin always has a spillover effect and these sailors are getting dumped on right now by Jonah's sin and they're just like, what do we do? What do we do? We are in trouble. And so what they decide to do is what any regular old sailor would, and let's gamble. Who knows? I don't know. Let's cast lots. Maybe we'll figure it out. Maybe some random God will answer us. And so what they do is they take two dice, or die, if you will, and they're going to cast them. And they don't have numbers one through six on them. Instead, what they have is white and dark sides. So what happens is if you throw it and you get two dark, the answer is no. If you get too light, the answer is yes. If you get a mix, then it's roll again. So you're going to put all the people who might have caused this problem, you're going to line them up or put them in a circle, and somebody's going to cast the lot. So they shake them up, boom, and they go around one by one. Are you it? Are you it? Are you it? Are you it? And they're trying to figure out who's the guilty party. Can you imagine what this would have felt like? I mean, this is worse than being called into the principal's office, right? I mean, this is going into the meeting after the merger where it's your boss and his boss and their boss and you're the only guy there and you're like, uh-oh, <laughs> what does this mean? It's not looking good for me right now. And they're just looking at you going, hmm, we had to make some cuts and we're throwing stuff overboard and we were looking at your department and uh, the security guys are right outside the door. <laughs> they have their tasers and handcuffs and here's your stuff, <laughs> you know. How are you feeling right then? It's like when the flashing lights go off in your rear view mirror and you're like, oh man, it's that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach where you know, man, I am in trouble. This is not a good spot to be. I mean, I'm looking around and I don't see a lot of ways off this boat right now. And we're in the middle of a storm and everybody is looking at me. How much does that feel? Not so great. So here is Jonah and they're casting and of course, naturally, inevitably, they throw the lot and it lands on him. And he is found out to be the guilty one. Now, I want to push pause right there because naturally the question comes up, okay, so this is an interesting process, this whole casting lot thing. We don't really do that in church today. Why not? Like, we do some of the stuff that the Bible stuff does, and we don't do some of the other stuff. Why is that? We just kind of pick and choose? Well, here's the deal. The lots in the Old Testament were 
basically a thing that was a cultural practice, okay? So a lot of times with cultural practices, you don't necessarily assume, oh, their culture did it, therefore our culture had to do it. But what happens is God is a multicultural God, so he often will incorporate cultural practices into uh, various settings in order to help these people. So, for example, in this setting, these people don't, here's the big point theologically, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't come. Jesus hasn't come. There's no day of Pentecost. There's no indwelling. The Spirit comes and goes, comes and goes, and it's sort of a random thing. So how do they know? How do they decide? Where do they get discernment? How do they know the will of the Lord? I mean, the Bible is not even complete. Nowhere close. And they're scratching their heads saying, what do we do? Well, in that situation, God comes to them and takes what they already have, that is the lots, and he says, okay, I'll use these on certain, in, on certain purposes. So, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, on the Day of Atonement, there would be a high priest who'd go into the Holy of Holies, he does his thing, and at some point he goes out in the wilderness and to determine which goat or which animal is sacrificed and which is released, lots are cast, and there is a scapegoat or one that's released out in the wilderness. So certain sacrifices God would choose by the casting of lots. Also, we see in the New Testament when John the Baptist's father is serving in the temple that the priest would often determine who is it that's supposed to burn incense before the Lord today. And the way they would decide that, because they don't really know, is just cast the lots. Yes, no, yes, no. Oh, it's your turn. Okay, you go in today. Lot chose you. Good luck. <laughs> Hope you don't come back dead. <laughs> you know, here's your opportunity. Go for it. And we also see in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua that the land, once they uh, had occupied it, was distributed by casting lots. Okay, who gets the northeast section? Oh, it looks like that's you, Zebulun or Gad or Asher. Here you go. Nope, you get this spot over here. Oh, man, shoot. Sorry. <laughs> lots cast. Somewhat like drawing straws in our society. But really the point is, is what the Bible's doing through this is trying to teach the people in a very tangible and real way about the sovereignty of God. That he is not some standoff, unknown, distant, faraway deity, but he's the God of the details, even down to the casting of lots. So he is sovereign over all things and he is intimately involved with your life as well. That's why the Proverbs will say it like this. They'll say, look, the lot is cast into the lap. We cast the lot. We roll the dice. But it's every decision is from the Lord. This should give you hope in your life where you go out and you think you're doing stuff and you're making decisions and you know there's unknowns and there's variables and there's this and that. At some point, you're like, well, Lord, here we go because I don't know. I'm making the best decision I've got with the information I have right now, and I'm trusting you and praying in faith, but at the end of the day, I don't really control this. You determine the outcome. So God, I'm casting my lot because believing in faith, this is what you want me to do, but really, I'm not so sure, so come on, Jesus. Boom. <laughs> we don't know. And then you trust him because the Bible says God determines the outcome. Yes or no? You may have been wanting the yes. He may have given you the no. Sorry, he may even give you a roll again. Well, he didn't give me an answer. I know, it's called roll again. Keep trying. It's not time yet. Yes, no, maybe so. 
The lot is cast. The Lord determines the outcome. There's so many verses just like that. Here's another one. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. You know, you go out, you gear up, you put on the metal, you put on the armor, you're ready to go. But at the end of the day, you know, could be a mosquito with malaria that takes out your horse. Oh, man. <laughs> I had them all geared up. Well, the horse is prepared for the battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. The real outcome is determined by God. This text is emphasizing the sovereignty of God. One of the main themes of the book of Jonah is God's power in moving these things to completion and conclusion no matter what. Now, am I just having fun as a theologian talking about the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, or does this actually apply to your life? Of course it applies to your life, directly. That's what theology is. It's practical. So, for example, you may ask the question, Oh boy, am I in the will of God right now? I don't know. As if everything hangs in the balance and depends upon you. Was Jonah in the will of God right now? What was it? Did he obey God? He disobeyed. So is he in the will of God? So Jonah disobeyed God. Therefore, he stepped outside of the will of God. Here's what I'd say to you is this, is look, Jonah was outside the perfect will of God. That's true. He disobeyed God. It would have been much easier for Jonah had he gone straight to Nineveh. He could have saved himself a lot of trouble, right? You know, a lot of trouble. However, even though he tried to disobey God, what ends up happening? God says, there you go, Jonah. <laughs> Let me help you out with that a little bit. So was he outside the will of God? Was he outside God's control? Had he escaped from the presence of the Lord? Was he outside the presence of the Lord? Did he successfully flee from the presence of the Lord? No. So is he outside the will of God? No. <laughs> yes and no. He disobeyed. He evaded the perfect will of God, but he didn't evade the sovereign will of God. He can't get away from God's presence. He can't get away from God's power. He can't get away from God's control. He can't hide in the bottom of the boat, even in the bottom of the sea. He can't get away from God. So that's one of the coolest things is here we are, you know, hanging on the head of a needle saying, oh, maybe I messed up. I don't know. What am I going to do? Am I outside the will of God? Well, you may have disobeyed God significantly and cost yourself a lot. No question. You may have made your life miserable. You may be at the bottom of the sea. And that thing you did was against the perfect will of God, yet it is not outside the control of God such that you may have caused yourself a lot of trouble, but you haven't caused God any trouble. What did it cost God for Jonah to run away? God's just like, <laughs> get me here. Boom. <laughs> Didn't require a lot of effort, did it? Wind. <sighs> Jonah. Fish, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. He can get him where he needs to be. Jonah's not going to thwart God's purpose. What power does Jonah have against a sovereign, almighty, completely in control God? Do you think he can really get away? you think he can really resist? Can I hold God at an arm's length? (laughs) I don't think so. God is more powerful than Jonah, and God is more powerful than Jonah's sin. 
So the lot is cast, but its every decision is determined by the Lord. The horse is made ready for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. A house, the laborers who build it labor in vain if they don't do so according to the Lord. Over and over again, all throughout the Bible, there's these verses that emphasize God is sovereign, God is in control. Yeah, you mess up, so you get outside the perfect will of God, but you can't get out far enough to get outside the sovereign will of God. You can't. You are not strong enough to escape God's power. You can't do it. God is powerful. So my recommendation is stay inside that little circle and save yourself all the trouble. (laughs) Obey. Believe. Follow. Trust. Don't sin. If you sin, you're going to hurt yourself and those people around you. But if you stay in that circle, man, you're good. You're good to go. You get outside of it, it's not going to cause God any trouble, but it'll cause you a lot of trouble. So stay in that inner circle. Stay close. Stay tight. So here's what happens. And the lot is cast, and it lands on Jonah. Now, I have one verse here. Um, actually, I'll, I'll, yeah, I spent a lot of time on that. But let me give you one quick modern example of a place where we would uh, cast lots. Every quarter or so, we do communion, right? And we tell you, Examine yourselves so that you're not guilty of drinking and eating condemnation onto yourself because you've participated in this process in an unworthy manner. You're sitting there saying, I believe in the blood and I believe in the body of Jesus. Meanwhile, you're doing something that says the exact opposite. And we say, whoa, not a good spot for you to be because the Bible promises that God will discipline you if you do. And so we say, examine yourself. Now, what if one Sunday we were to say, okay, let's try to apply Jonah here. All right, Paul, come forward. You ready? Here we go. You're about to take communion. Hold on. I want to see if there's any sin in your life. Let me grab my lots. God, is Paul sinning right now? Hmm. Roll again. All right. And you just keep going and going. How would you feel? That'd be scary. Everyone's watching. What is Jonah feeling? They're doing the same thing to him, and his life's at stake. But we don't have to do that nowadays because we are not in the same spot they were. We have the Holy Spirit, so I don't have to examine your heart. I can ask you to examine your heart, and you can ask the Holy Spirit directly, hey, um, Spirit, is there something here that I'm not seeing that you want to show me? Because if there is, please point it out. I don't want to get outside the boat. I want to go exactly where you want me to go. Lord, forgive me and show me and help me and bring it to my mind because I'm about to do this thing and I don't want to do it if it's not within that little circle. Jesus, please help. And you can pray and what will happen? Well, Jesus told us in John uh, chapter 16. He said, here's the advantage you have as a New Testament believer. You know, he says, look, I'm telling you the truth. It's to your advantage. It's actually advantage that Jesus goes away. Can you believe that? Can you believe that you're more advantaged than the apostles who walked with Christ? It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And when he comes, he'll do what the lots could never do perfectly. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's that whole lot thing. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So we don't have to cast lots today. That was just a thing they did because they didn't have anything else. We've got something so much better. We have the Holy Spirit. 
We don't need to be uncertain. We don't need to be guessing. We just examine ourselves and go to God in prayer and let him point it out. And if we're sensitive, he will. So back to the boat. Jonah is on board and they're casting the lots and a lot falls on him. And I kind of tried to read it this way, but hopefully you heard it. When it lands on him, they are blasting him with questions. They're like, what are you doing, man? What's going on? I mean, all of a sudden, here's the guys. Remember, they work for like Attila the Hun, if you will, or Jabba the Hut. Okay, here comes your Star Wars reference, right? You know there's got to be one. Jabba the Hutt, for those of you who aren't uh, Star Wars fans, he's a big slimy slug, he's a gangster, he's, he um, does things like, you know, he would be something like a drug trafficker today or something like this. He's a really bad guy, has bad people that work for him. Well, one of his, just his couriers is this guy named Hans Solo. And Hans has to carry things from one side of the galaxy to the other without the empire recognizing it so it doesn't get taxed or anything like this. He's a smuggler. Well, one day, you know, Han fails to deliver his cargo, so inevitably Jabba the gangster is going to what? He's going to send Guido and Veni or whoever after him and shake him up a bit. In fact, Han Solo is going to become his hood ornament or his taxidermy or his wall art, if you will. He's going to freeze him and put him up on the wall and say, ha, 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 look at what happens to anybody who disobeys me. (laughs) Remember that part, right? I love that, man. I don't know. You'll remember that. I've been waiting for that opportunity. So here's this gangster, you know, who perhaps these guys work for, and they've just thrown his cargo overboard. What kind of scenario are they in? They're in trouble, man. If this guy's like the other Assyrians, he's literally going to hang them up on their wall. He's going to taxidermy them. He's going to impale them on the pole like the pictures you saw last week. He's going to fillet these guys alive. Not kidding. They're in trouble. <laughs> and so they find out this Yahoo's done something to mess things up for them. They are not happy. You are going to get us killed in a very unpleasant way. And I'm not so sure I'm happy with you about that. They're mad. What have you done? Where are you from? What's going on, man? And listen to how Jonah answers. It's an absolutely beautiful answer. I hope if nothing else from this sermon, you can go away from it today answering just like Jonah. It's an amazing answer. These guys are asking him questions that you would normally ask, like if you meet somebody. Even then, you'd say, hey, what do you do? Oh, yeah, I work at, you know, such and such, such and such in the such and such department. Oh, yeah, I work at such and such, such and such in the such and such department, (laughs) you know. What's your occupation? What level are you? How much money do you make? What kind of car do you drive? That's a nice house. Where are you from? Are you from this side of the city or the other side of the city? Size each other up pretty quick, don't we? They're sizing him up. They want to know. Listen to how Jonah answers. He'd say, well, actually, I'm a prophet, which is pretty good. It's not as good as if you're in this tribe because they got this portion of land as their inheritance. And, you know, the priests, they don't have the inheritance, but they get to live in the temple, which is pretty cool because then they have all these sacrifices all day long. Even though they don't make money, they get to eat, you know, the best lamb. And No, he doesn't go into his 403B, 401K stock account or accomplishments or anything. He answers entirely differently. 
what is your occupation? Does he answer that? No. That's not who he is. That's what he does. That's not who he is. Well, how much money do you make? What do you do for a living? What is your social economic background? How smart are you? How athletic are you? How pretty are you? How skinny? How? Nope. No answers there. Those things don't matter. I'm not talking about that. That's not my fundamental core. That's not really who I am. That's not my identity. What's your identity? Who are you then? Who are you, church? Who are you? Well, I'm good at this. I'm good. <laughs> well, I'm. No. Who are you? Jonah answers the right way, actually. He says this I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Everything I am is wrapped up in him. It's got nothing to do with me. He didn't say, I'm a pretty good prophet. I've never called down fire from heaven like Elijah, but I've done some pretty cool other miracles. You got to check them out. Hey, they wrote about me in the northern kingdom. <laughs> you should hear me there. I'm like kissing babies and stuff. No. He says, this is who I am. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord God of heaven. What does that mean? His fundamental, irreducible core, the most important thing about him is not what he can do, how much he makes, what he looks like, how smart he is, or anything else. It's his relationship with God. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I'm part of the covenant community. I've been cut out. I've been marked. I've been chosen to be part of the family of faith. I'm distinct from all the people around me. Yeah, I'm different than you guys. I serve a monotheistic religion that says there's only one God. We don't worship all these other idols. We don't pay homage or sacrifice to them. We are specifically set aside to be holy and be a people unto Yahweh. That's who I am. I'm a Hebrew. I'm part of this covenant community of faith. And once I'm called out and placed in that community, then what am I told to do? I'm told to fear him. Now, we North Americans don't really like that word because we think it's grovel in defeat, but the reality is there is a humility and awe that should always accomplish a, a, a company our worship. It is, I fear God. You know, he's, he's big. He's really big. In fact, you want to know how big he is? He made the heavens and the earth and the dry land and the sea and everything in between. That's why he uses dry land and sea. Because that's all there is, really. It can be kind of soggy, or it can be frozen, or it can be whatever. But at the end of the day, it's either dry or wet. You know, It's a merism. It's the idea, like, from the rising of the sun to the going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. All the time. Everything in between. There's this sovereign, universal, fully comprehensive, complete deity that reigns over all things. It's not like your other gods, guys. He's different. This is a poke in the eye at the polytheist, if you will. It's a polemic. It says, not like that. This is the universal God who is sovereign and powerful. And he rules over all. And so, yeah, I can approach him, but I do so on my knees. How do you approach God? Yes, you can come boldly into the throne, but don't forget, it's the throne. <laughs> come carefully. Come intentionally come often but be aware this is the god overall 
Humility and awe should accompany your worship and praise. So here's Jonah. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord who made everything. And then the guys, it says in verse 10, are exceedingly afraid. I mean, if it wasn't enough to be running from Jabba the Hutt, now we're running from the God of the universe. Thanks a lot. (laughs) I thought it was bad when the gangster was chasing me. You just told me that there's a universal dude who can kill me anywhere. That's not good. Scary gangster is a guy who has claws out in the outer reaches of the galaxy. This guy has reaches, claws everywhere? Ah, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Not helpful. (laughs) Not helpful at all. You see, church, sin always has a spillover effect, and I want you to understand that not just as a joke, but as a reality. We live in a world in which there's a lot of sin, but you simply can't sin and get away with it. In fact, there's no such thing as a private sin. If you're looking at pornography, it's not just you and your buddy in the room. It is all those little girls that you hurt as well. It's the exploitation of this people group. It is the dehumanization of individuals and the sexualization of everything in our culture. It's sick. You're not just one little contributor. Well, we can just do drugs in our own little apartment. And I've heard this argument given to me from physicians. Well, you know, if they're hurting themselves and not hurting anybody else... Like, not hurting anybody else. Have you ever been to the city of Juarez and seen the guys hanging from the bridges over there or people are thrown in the back of barrels? No. (laughs) There's no such thing as a private sin. Every sin has a spillover effect. That's one of the reasons God hates sin so much. You don't just sin against yourself. You sin against yourself and everybody else. That's why this covenant community is a big deal. Look at Achan in the Old Testament. The, you know, these, here's an example of casting lots, and it plays right into this, okay? Achan, Old Testament, Joshua 7. He's, he's a dude that goes with the Israelites across the Jordan River. River crosses. Wow, there's the work of God. They conquer the city of Jericho. Woohoo! Walls fell down. Look at the work of God. They're told, now, don't, don't take any of the stuff. That's not for you. We, this is sinful pagan stuff. It needs to be burnt and destroyed, and we don't want any of that in our lives. Get rid of it. I don't care how shiny that little idol is or beautiful or whatever. Burn it, you know? And they're plowing through the promised land, and they're winning, 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 and all of a sudden they go up against some little group, and they lose. And everybody's looking around like, what happened? We were just kicking tail, and all of a sudden we got beat by this tiny little group of marauders. huh? And then it becomes clear somebody in the camp has sinned. So what do we do? We cast lots to figure out who it was. And they cast lots, and lots fall on Achan. And right then, man, the Israelites stone him and his entire family and destroy all his stuff because his sin is costing them not just a little but a lot. And here's Jonah, and he's thinking, hmm, I've read that story before. <laughs> I know what happens to the one who's, when the lot falls on him, then the stones start flying. Well, we're on a boat. There aren't a lot of stones because everything heavy has been thrown overboard. <laughs> so what are they going to do? Well, I guess they can just throw him overboard too, right? <laughs> I mean, we've already cast off all the stones, so our only implication is we can't stone him. We'll just have to throw him to the bottom of the sea. Because sin has a spillover effect, and you've got to purge the congregation, thus church discipline, thus everything else. You can't allow sin to stay in the camp. It hurts everybody. It doesn't work. So, here they are running from Jabba the Hutt and the God who made heaven and earth. 
the land and the sea. They realize who the guilty party is. And now the question is, what are we going to do? I mean, we're in trouble. What are we going to do? And Jonah uh, says to them, perhaps in his, his, his beginning of his softening, we don't really know for sure, he's kind of like this. He's like, well, guys, yeah, it's my fault. So pick me up, hurl me into the sea, verse 12, and the sea will quiet down. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, verse 13 says, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. Isn't that funny? Here's this guilty Christian, if you will, surrounded by non-believers. And who is the faithful one? The pagan sailors. They're willing to risk their lives for the sake of this prophet that has put them at risk. They're rowing harder and harder. They're digging in. They're trying to get back to land, which at that time was not safe at all because there's only one harbor and the rest of the land is covered by rocks and they can't see because the storm is dark. So they're risking their lives to be crashed upon the rocks to try to save this Yahoo who's killing them. (laughs) The pagan sailors are showing themselves to be more faithful and loyal than God's own prophet. Has that ever happened to us? There are times in our lives where the unbelieving heathen make us look bad and show themselves to be more faithful, loyal, true, or good than we are? I hope not, but I fear at times it's so. It happens to all of us. So they try, verse 13, but it says specifically they could not. Why couldn't they? Well, Job answers this very clearly. (laughs) Can you get outside the will of God? Job 42, 1 through 2 says this. Then Job answered the Lord in Job 42. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The reality is this, is repentance requires submission to sovereignty. Repentance requires submission to sovereignty. Repentance requires submission to sovereignty. God is sovereign over all things, and you've got to come to the point where you say, okay, Lord, I've been trying a long time to do it my way, and it's not working. Okay, maybe yours. <laughs> We've been rowing like crazy. We're still not getting anywhere. Lord, your turn. <laughs> maybe you should take the rudder. Maybe you should take the wheel. Maybe you should whatever. But at this point, God, I'm, I'm handing over the reins to you. They rode, they rode, they couldn't get anywhere, and at last, when all human effort is finally failed, then the sailors call out to the Lord. (laughs) Isn't that the way it is? We are so silly. We try as hard as we can. I'm going to accomplish this on my own. I'm going to do it. I know I can. Just believe and you will. Blah, 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 blah. Man, why isn't this working? Not until all human effort is fully exhausted do we finally hand over the reins and say, okay, God, now it's your turn. I'm giving up. I submit. I'm sorry. Your way is the right way. It's not mine. I made a mistake. Lord, you direct me from here on out. Not until they realized that they could not resist did they finally say, yeah, okay, 
All right. So therefore they called out to the Lord and said, O Lord, don't let us perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood. We're about to kill this guy. We're going to kill him. We're going to throw him overboard into the sea and if the sharks don't get him, the waves will. And if not, he's never making it back to the side. Lord, we're going to kill him and we don't want to be held guilty because Job is already chasing us and we don't want you chasing us either. Lord, don't put his blood on us. For you, O Lord, listen to this massive, massive, massive theological statement. Can you step outside that circle? Can you get outside of it? For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Another prophet, a much more faithful one, answers like this. Blessed be the name of the God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and insight. He changes times and seasons He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who understand. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness. Is the darkness really that scary? What is scary? The darkness or the lion? I think it's the lion. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him not even darkness is dark to him so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea stopped and the question then becomes who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him what kind of God is this Jonah that is totally outside my box as a result they feared the Lord exceedingly They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. No longer terrified by the sea, the sailors are now afraid of something else, something much greater, something more powerful, something that controls all things. Their fear of nature turns to the fear of the Creator. And the irony is that the pagan sailors are showing us what true worship looks like. Here is this prophet who's called to fear Yahweh, who hasn't even prayed or called out to him once yet, and is running in the exact opposite direction he should go. And here are these pagan sailors that are risking their lives to save this Yahoo, and they're the first ones to pray. And they're not just praying to a God anymore, but it says specifically they prayed to the Lord God, to Yahweh. (laughs) What is going on? Well, not even they're outside that circle, are they? They're not Hebrews. They're not part of the covenant community. But Genesis 22, 18 tells us this is the promise to Abraham. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed and what we find is this is that that is coming true in this very moment Jonah is outside the immediate circle but God's circle still exists even in Jonah's sin and disobedience God is still bringing people to himself outside this little tiny circle even in the broader circles God is at work so now the pagan sailors and eventually the Ninevites And all these people get to experience God's grace even in Jonah's sin. That's pretty cool. 
And so I think my message to you today is this, is I think you should fear God too. I think even as New Testament believers, we are called to fear God. We are called to fear the God of the storm, not the storm. We are called to fear the God whose power and presence commands our fear, while at the same time, his compassion and character demands our love. This is a strange and amazing God. I don't really understand what that looks like. I don't think Lucy and Edmund and Peter did either. But the way Mr. Beaver tells them is like this. He says, hey, look, you'll understand when you see him. Church, you'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him, asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm here to lead you where you shall meet him. Is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan, a man. Of course not, said Mr. Beaver. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan. He is a lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall fear, rather be nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, said Mr. Beaver, that you will. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just plain silly. Then he isn't safe? Safe? Of course not, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you know? He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. Never safe. Always good. What's more scary? Is it the darkness, the storm, or the lion? I tell you, it's the lion. Fear the lion. Don't fear the storm. Follow after God. Father, we thank you for your greatness and goodness and power to us. There's nothing more beautiful or amazing than you. Lord, as we run in this direction and that, all over the place, sometimes the right way, sometimes the wrong way, we pray, God, that you would help us to truly fear you, not to rely on luck or chance or skill or those silly things that we humans do, but totally cast ourselves at your feet in complete mercy and submission to our God and King. Lord, on you and you alone we rely. May your message and your will and your glory and your purpose be accomplished in our lives and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.